At the break of dawn on April 9, 1945, an unassuming German pastor was hanged at the Flossenburg concentration camp in a remote part of northeastern Germany. And yet his death was just the culmination of years of service and sacrifice for the sake of Christ and his church. In my interview today, I'm talking with Stephen Nichols about the life, death, and legacy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We discuss Bonhoeffer's work leading a movement of churches in Germany that stood opposed to the Nazi regime, his role in Operation Valkyrie, the famous plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler, and whether or not we should view him as an evangelical in the modern sense of the word today. Stephen Nichols serves as president of Reformation Bible College and chief academic officer at Ligonier Ministries. He's also the author of Bonhoeffer on the Christian Life, From the Cross for the World, from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, Always enjoy our conversations and certainly looking forward to this one. For those of us who aren't as familiar with who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, I wonder if you could just start off by telling us a little bit about who he was, when he lived, where he lived, and, and then just very briefly, why is he so famous? Well, probably the thing most people know about Bonhoeffer, if they know anything about him, is his death. He was hanged at the Flossenburg concentration camp in April of 1945. The timing is crucial. He was hanged literally just a few weeks before that particular concentration camp was liberated by the Allied forces, and he was executed by direct orders of Hitler himself in what turned out to be the final weeks, days of Hitler's life as Mm. the Third Reich and the Nazi regime uh, fell defeated in World War II. Before that, he was a Lutheran pastor, theologian, scholar, writer, and uh, just a, a delightful life, a short life, uh, 39 years old. And, you know, for folks, theologians, they're just getting started in their 40s. Right. He's dead at 39. Um, so just a fascinating life. He's born in Berlin and a Berliner uh, most of his life. So born in 1908, uh, as I mentioned, he dies, I'm sorry, uh, born in 1906, as I mentioned, he dies in 1945, and uh, probably a fact a lot of people don't know about him is he had a twin, uh, so he had a twin sister, which I always thought was just a sweet uh, piece of the Bonifer story. Mm. It's always, those kinds of, you know, facts about people's lives or insights can be so interesting, because I think sometimes when, when it comes to famous people, we know they're people intellectually just like us, but when you get the, those little bits like, oh, he had a twin, you kind of start to think about them as real humans uh, a little bit differently. Yeah, I think that's so true, Matt. Uh, you know, I think so often, especially our church history figures, they come to us as sort of encyclopedia articles. Uh, you know, they're, they're just so flat. I'm sure some that you've written, encyclopedia articles. <laughs> well, maybe, but they're, they're so flat and you don't think of them as as brothers and and sons and husbands. Um, now, Bonifer wasn't married. He did have a fiance, and hopefully we can get into that and talk about that story. But, uh, yeah, and there was a brief time in 1939 where, through some of his American contacts, they had arranged for Bonifer to come to America. And the plan was for him to be safe here through the war, the impending war. 
And when Bonhoeffer got to America, he knew it was a mistake. He knew he needed to be back with his people. So he uh, immediately made the, the plans to return. But on the return, he had to go through Britain to get, to get back to Germany. And his twin was married to a Jewish man. Uh, and so through Bonhoeffer's contacts and family contacts, they had left Germany uh, ahead of World War II, and they were living in, in Britain. So I just, I just think of that moment that Bonhoeffer was able to send, spend with his twin sister mm. in the courtyard behind their flat uh, in London. Uh, and then he went to Germany. It was the last time they saw each other. So there is, a, there is a sense in which, as we understand these church history folks as people, we can really begin to connect with them and really see how they can help us as in our attempts to be faithful disciples in this moment in which we live. So, yeah. Mm. So beyond, beyond the, the tragic events of his, his death, um, Bonhoeffer uh, is, is well known as uh, playing a critical role, a leading role in the German confessing church uh, during this time period. I wonder if you could help us understand what, what was that church denomination? What were they all about and what role did he play in that? Yeah, this is a great question. Of course, um, he comes from a family that's not very, just to give you the big context here, he comes from a family that's not very religious. Uh, His father was a psychology professor at Berlin, sort of a pioneer in the field of early psychology and psychiatry, and also a bit of renown and prestige and some wealth, uh, but not a religious family. And so when he's 12 years old, he comes out to the family salon where they have the piano and so forth, and he announces, I'm going to be a theologian. And uh, (laughs) I always love that. He doesn't say, I'm going to be a pastor. He doesn't say, I'm going to be a church. He's, I am going to be a theologian. And, you know, where does this come from? Um, And so he goes off to study, goes to Berlin. He receives his PhD uh, before his 21st birthday. And he ends up getting doctorates both in philosophy and in theology and uh, is obviously a very capable theologian and begins an academic uh, career uh, teaching theology and teaching Bible. And, of course, all of this is, um, is going to be made incredibly difficult as the Nazi regime comes into power in the 19 19- early 1930s, 1933, and the German National Lutheran Church basically endorses the Nazi party. And this is like the state church? This is the state church. This is what Bonhoeffer would have been licensed to teach theology by and would have been a member of the state church. And and the state church endorses the Nazi party, and they become known as the Reichkirche, the Church of the Reich. And of course, Bonhoeffer is opposed to this, and a, a group is composed to this. And so they immediately form what's called the Confessing Church. And Bonhoeffer becomes a very crucial part of it. Uh, they set about to write a doctrinal statement, um, this, this confession of the Confessing Church ends up getting changed and edited and so forth. Bonhoeffer was the original architect of it gets sort of taken over. It ends up emerging as the Barman Declaration, which some people might be familiar with from the city of Barman. But Bonhoeffer was a very crucial figure in this. And 
of course, these were illegal churches and these were illegal pastorates. And so they needed a seminary, but all this needed to be underground. And they appointed five seminaries, the largest of one of which met at Finkenwalde. And Bonifer was appointed the director of that underground seminary at Finkenwalde until it was shut down by the Gestapo. Um, so this is all happening in the mid-1930s. And then once it's shut down by the Gestapo, and they sort of get spread out, they just figure out ways, Bonfer figures out ways to continue to meet with his students and continue to teach them and train them. So all this is happening underground uh, with this confessing church as the Nazis continue to rise in power and as World War II looms on the horizon. Yeah, it's one of the most amazing things about his story is just how there is this this espionage spy thriller dynamic, but it's like it's like pastoral espionage almost. <laughs> That's right. It's pretty amazing to think about the things that they did uh, in order to continue to teach uh, true theology, teach the Bible in the face of this you know massive compromise on behalf of the the state church. So in the in the late 1930s, Bonfer has protection. He has brothers and brothers-in-law who are highly placed. And one is this officer in the Abwehr, which was the military intelligence. And much of the Abwehr were opposed to the Nazis. And in fact, the Gestapo was sort of set up as a competing organization against the Abwehr. So, you know, there were a number in key positions in Germany that opposed Hitler and opposed the Nazi regime and opposed the Gestapo and worked within as a resistance movement. Probably this all culminates in what everybody knows as, as the Valkyrie plot. Uh, and of course the movie that has, has memorialized that. This is the group of people that Bonfer had associations with. And in 1940, he becomes a, an agent, a spy uh, for the Abwehr. But it's largely cover for him to do his church work. Mm. Um, and, it, and it's all arranged through his brother-in-law, Don Anye, and it enables Bonifer to travel and be able to carry on his church work as a spy. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a very fascinating, intriguing story. Yeah. I want to return to that, the Operation Valkyrie and his, his involvement in that plot to assassinate Hitler. Uh, but before we get to that, you mentioned a few minutes ago this Barman Declaration, and that's another one of these pillars in his story. Uh, and it's really a significant thing that touches on other prominent theologians from Germany at the time as well. I wonder if you could just explain what was that declaration that he helped to write and sign, and uh, what role did that play in the broader story? So the Barman Declaration is a very important document in the 20th century. It establishes a clear call for the church to not be subjugated to the state or a servant of the state. That was precisely what was happening with the Reich Kirche. It was a way to promote Nazism in the Nazi regime. These theologians saw it for what it was, and they, they knew what the church's calling was uh, to be faithful to God and obedient to God's law. And if obeying God's law put them at odds with the law of the state, then so be it. We obey God rather than man. And so it was a definite line in the sand and a declaration of the church's independence from the state. And it also was a way of calling the state to be the state in its God-ordained role as an agent of justice and righteousness. And so it was a very powerful document. A key person in it is also Karl Barth. So that's the Barman Declaration. The 
theological confession of the confessing church was a document that uh, Bonifer uh, was the key architect of. And um, that document is basically a reiteration of the Augsburg Statement, which of course is the, or the, the Augsburg Confession, which of course is the confession, the historic confession of Lutheranism. So, R- written originally by Martin Luther, is that correct? Uh, written by Luther and also by Melanchthon, and then uh, affirmed at Augsburg as sort of the crowning achievement of the German Reformation and the Reformation of the Church. Hmm. And so, these are very important documents to basically restore the soul of the German church, the theological soul and theological commitment uh, of the German church at, at really its darkest hour. Yeah. What were, the, what were the implications for those who signed that declaration and then that, that later theological statement? Was there, was there in, in doing so, were they kind of putting themselves in the crosshairs of the Nazis, so to speak? Yes. There were lists, and Bonifer was on the list. Uh, So he was banned from teaching. Uh, That was the first thing for being a member of the Confessing Church. So he lost his professorship at the University of Berlin and lost his license to teach. His books were banned. They were forbidden to be sold. And uh, and he had published a few of it. He published his dissertation at this time. Um, The Cost of Discipleship book is about to come off the presses now. Uh, These are banned. And it's also now uh, he's banned from continuing to write. Well, of course he does. Uh, but no, he's because of this public stand that Bonifer took, uh, there were certain repercussions. And, and that's, of course, uh, there were certain repercussions. And that's, of course, too, why we then have the, um, uh, the underground seminary that was formed mm-hmm. at Finkenwald. Yeah. So a few minutes ago, you mentioned that in 1939, he traveled to the U.S., uh, but as you said, he only stayed for, I think it was something around two weeks. Uh, and I wonder if you could elaborate on that. You know, was that, uh, you said he felt this need to go back uh, to serve the church in Germany, but um, what was behind that decision to, to turn around and go home? Yeah, this was actually his second trip to the United States. He had been here in 1930-31, and uh, he wanted to spend some time getting updated on American theological developments and just spend time in America. And so he, in 1930-31, to 31, he spent the whole year here in America. Uh, just as a quick trivial point, uh, over Christmas break, uh, he and a Frenchman and two American students drove a car from New York City all the way to Mexico. So, and they would, they had pup tents, you know, and they would pull over to the side <laughs> of the road and have a little campfire and sleep out in the tent. So you just picture this, and here he is in 1930, uh, traveling the entire United States. Once they get to Mexico, I think the car is pretty much shot at that point. And so they all go their separate ways. He gets passage over to Cuba, spends Christmas in Cuba, and then slowly makes his way up the East Coast back to New York. So mm. he was an adventurous soul, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, but this is now in 1939. And through those contacts in America, he was invited back and set up for a lecture tour. And the idea was that an academic post would open up for him at one of the American universities or seminaries. And he could safely ride out the war that was mm. coming and, uh, and be preserved in it. He says that the moment he stepped on the dock, this is his words, I knew I made a mistake. 
And he said, uh, whatever dark storm is coming for the church in Germany, he, he believed that God would, would deliver, ultimately deliver the German people and the German church from it. That, that the storm was coming, but there would be a time where they'd come through on the other end. And he said, when that happens, the church, the strike church and the, and the nation would literally need to be rebuilt. And he saw himself as probably one of those that would be engaged in the rebuilding. And he came to this realization, how could I uh, rebuild this church if I abandon it at its darkest hour? And so he was compelled to go back. And it was just yeah. a matter of booking passage. And he ends up getting on passage on what was the last passenger ship because of the threats of German U-boats and submarines uh, in the wow. Atlantic. Wow. That's incredible. It's such an amazing example of that commitment to, to doing the hard thing that I'm sure uh, many in his life would have said, you know, what are you doing? Why would you go back? Um, turning, turning to that uh, plot that you mentioned, the, the, plot, the famous plot to assassinate Hitler, um, obviously, as, as you mentioned, there's a, a, a famous, really riveting movie uh, with Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. Everyone knows uh, it, of course. Yeah, helping us uh, see what happened. And, and, and his involvement, his alleged involvement in that actual plot to assassinate Hitler was the justification for his arrest and eventual execution that the Nazis gave. What do we know about how involved he actually was in that plot? So the Valkyrie plot... Is a, is a crucial piece of the Bonifer story. He, he was part of a group, I'd mentioned his brother, brothers-in-law, others, a group of about a dozen that were highly placed individuals. These were, these were uh, military professionals, career military attorneys. These were the heavy lifters of the plots. There were multiple ones that were attempted and then all of them Hitler manages to escape. The, the one that came the closest was the bomb in the briefcase, but it, it was moved at the last minute and moved next to uh, like what was essentially a pillar under the table as a table support, and that absorbed the, the bulk of the blast. The huge question is, what was Bonifer's involvement, and what do we make of Bonifer's involvement? So first of all, he's not a military guy. He, he has no military experience. He's a theologian. He's a trained theologian and a pastor. So he's not involved in the plot. Uh, he, he's not giving strategic advice. He's not giving his expertise. He doesn't have an opinion. Um, I think what he is, is he's putting himself in the room as, as a priest, basically to absolve those who were involved in the plot. Hmm. And I think we have to realize that Bonifer himself came to this incredibly reluctantly. And, and he, he wasn't, capricious about it, and he certainly was not cavalier about it. Uh, in fact, at one point, he says, I may even be damning my own soul by, by being involved in taking a life. But he saw no other option. And it was a time of war, and I think we need to put that into the mix. And these folks that were involved in the plot, they saw Hitler as an enemy of the state who had basically not only declared war on the nations around Germany, but in one sense, he declared war on Germany itself. And so that's, that's, so that's where all this uh, mm. evolves to. 
Now, in terms of Bonhoeffer's arrest, curiously enough, he was actually involved in helping Jews escape, and they would use their contacts in the Abwehr and the resources from the Abwehr to help Jews escape. And uh, they kept records of this so that they could know where they were, etc. And that was actually the reason that Bonifer and the co-conspirators were arrested because of those activities. And then it was with a view to try to get them in jail to find out their involvement in the conspiracy itself. And so the the reason was of trying to get Jews out of Germany, but but actually it was because they were suspected to be of the conspiracy. But these were especially like these were colonels and and highly placed military officers. Uh, they needed evidence against them if they were going to try them. And um, there's another chapter to that story with the discovery of the Zossen files, but. Yeah, there's, there's so many uh, avenues to go down, and, and they all, it's this intricate web of, yeah, espionage and politics and, and, and religion there, too. Yes, right. You're right. So over a decade ago, in 2011, Eric Metaxas published his famous biography of Bonhoeffer. Uh, I think the book was called Bonhoeffer, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. It's a great title for a book. <laughs> it is. It's a wonderful um, title. So so captivating. And, and the book was an international bestseller and really sparked a lot of broad and, and in particular evangelical interest in Bonhoeffer's story. And I wonder if just to start off, why do you think the book had that kind of an impact? What was it about uh, the story itself, the way Metaxas wrote it, and even maybe that moment in our, in our uh, country's history that kind of caused it to resonate so much? It's a powerfully written book, and it's a very well-written book. It's, it's, I mean, it's a true page-turner, so it's got that going for it. I think for the longest time, Bonifer was sort of taken, if I can just put it bluntly, he was taken over by the liberals, and, and evangelicals weren't sure what to do with him, and mm. we sort of appreciated him, but we weren't sure he was one of us. Uh, and I think it's because the liberals just sort of co-opted him and took him and made him theirs. The reality is, as you begin to look at Bonifer, he's an evangelical. He talks about the authority of Scripture. He talks about the necessity of justification by faith alone. He was a critic of Karl Barth. Everybody talks about his appreciation for Karl Barth. He was actually annoyed by Karl Barth on a <laughs> lot of levels. And so, so I think one of the things that Metaxas's biography did, and rightfully so, was show evangelicals that Bonifer's actually one of us, and we can claim him. And as we claim him, we can really learn a lot here about, again, what it means to live out our Christian life and mm -hmm. what it means to live out our Christian life in a challenging and complex time. Um, and, you know, there's just so much—so the day after the Valkyrie plot, Bonifer recognizes— Right, this is this is probably the best chance they had to take out Hitler. What's going to come next? And what Bonifer writes is uh, to a friend. He writes, "Jesus is alive. I have hope." So you think, what a theological perspective! You get mm. what you could identify as probably the worst possible news, and you interpret it, and you assimilate it theologically. And through your theological grid, you know where the truth is, and now you know where you stand, 
and you can say, I have hope. Mm. Right. I mean, that's brilliant. And I think if all of us could grasp that, that no matter what happens to us in our lives on an individual scale or what happens culturally on a grand scale, sometimes we just want to do the chicken little thing and say the sky is falling and give up. But what if our reflex was to say, Jesus is alive, I have hope. Right. Mm. So, so I think, I think that's, that's what Metaxas helped people see in Bonhoeffer. And um, again, it was just such a well-written book, and I think it just hit at a certain time. And uh, I'm grateful for it, and, and grateful for those that have come to this appreciation uh, for Bonhoeffer. Yeah, yeah. So since the book was released, uh, you know, that decade ago, I know some historians and others have criticized Metaxas and the book, and, and maybe even other evangelicals who have kind of followed in his footsteps for um, painting Bonhoeffer as more evangelical than he actually was. Do you think there's any truth to that criticism? Are, are there limits to sort of the, the, the things that we can learn from him, uh, in your opinion? Or do you think that the kind of the, the full portrayal of him as an evangelical in our sense of the word today is fair. I think if you go to uh, that doctrinal statement that I was talking about, and then the, in the Bonifer on the Christian Life book, I spend a chapter on Bonifer on the Bible, and I look at what he was writing in that confessional statement about the Bible, and his position of the authority of Scripture, the full authority of Scripture, and all that it, it says— it's, it's very different from what was Bart's view of inspiration, which comes to dominate much of that scene. And in later editions where it gets edited, it gets edited in a more Bardian trajectory. Hmm. And I think all that just proves that Bonifer was different than his liberal context. Uh, at the very end of his life, uh, he he gets sent when he was at Tegel prison. He could have papers and and he could have books and he had good relationships with the guards and and material was flowing freely. Towards the end, he was imprisoned in Berlin and all those that all that was cut off. So his writing comes down to a trickle at that mm. point. But just hear a couple lines from one of his last letters. It, it was written to his to his family. And so he writes, please don't ever get anxious or worried about me, but don't forget to pray for me. I'm sure you don't. I'm sure of God's guiding hand that I hope I shall always be kept in that certainty. You must never doubt that I'm traveling with gratitude and cheerfulness along the road where I'm being led. My past life is brimful of God's goodness. And then here's a line to listen to. And my sins are forgiven, and my sins are covered by the forgiving love of Christ crucified. Now that line, my sins are forgiven, uh, and my sins are covered by Christ crucified. I think that's a profession of faith that would get him into any one of our evangelical churches. Yeah, um, yeah. And so I think we have to recognize when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to the gospel, he's a conservative. He would be on the side of the evangelicals. And 
I've no problem with making that argument. Now, there are some who want to draw attention to some of his uh, writings from prison. He speaks of a so-called Christless Christianity, and, and much is made of that. Uh, but I think what he's talking about there is the structures of the state church that need to be recast and yeah. uh, redrawn. Um, but there's there's plenty of evidence, I think. If, what what does it take to be an, evangel- an evangelical, right? I think and that's and that's a topic of debate for, exactly. for decades. That's debatable. Somewhere in there has to be a view of the authority of scripture and a view of the gospel. I mean, that's in the name evangel. So we've got to be talking about justification by faith alone if we're talking about evangelicals. And mm. Bonifer checks that box. I yeah. you, you see it it's clear in his writings. Yeah. So Stephen, you know this, uh, but we live in an increasingly fractured world, uh, both outside of the church and even, sadly, within the church. We see this all the time, where there's social and political polarization that seems to be getting worse and worse all over the place. And um, I wonder if you have any thoughts on uh, what Bonhoeffer might say to us today, the American church, uh, if he were alive and seeing this uh, in light of what he experienced. Man, I, I think one of the hardest things for us is to bring together what is all over Paul's epistles, to be kind, tender-hearted, and compassionate. I mean, you, you see it. It's there. Um, it's all over the pages of Scripture. What is also all over the pages of Scripture is conviction and the courage of our convictions and the beliefs. And I think what you see in Bonifer is a combination of conviction and compassion. He held firmly to beliefs because he knew these beliefs mattered. If you're talking about Christianity, you're talking about beliefs. Uh, you're talking about defining certain things. He, he wrote a novel. Uh, he wrote a novel when he was in prison. And huh. it's a classic, it's a kind of a novel a theologian would write, but it starts off with the grandchild <laughs> is visiting the grandmother's church. Uh, and are visiting with the grandmother, and they go to church, and they're walking home from the sermon, and the grandmother asks the grandchild, what did you think of the sermon? And the grandson says, oh, it was a fine sermon. I enjoyed it. And she grabs, you know, squeezes his hand, and she squares off and looks at him in the eye, and she said, don't ever accept a cheap imitation for the real thing. That was not the preaching of the gospel, right? Hmm. So this is a theologian's novel, of course. But, <laughs> but, you know, what's he saying there? He's saying that this this church is not the church, it's not preaching the gospel. And this is before, you know, he this is before the Nazis. He, he held this view of the German church had already sold its soul. Hmm. Um, so the church has to be the church, and it has to stand firm with the courage of its convictions. But Bonifer was a man of compassion. He was a man of kindness, a man of generosity, a, a, a capacious spirit, a generous spirit. And I think as we engage in this moment, it's hard. I mean, it's, it's really hard, but I think we have to tell ourselves, this is the standard to be both people of conviction and people of compassion. Mm. It actually reminds me of uh, another uh, theologian that you had the privilege of working alongside and writing another biography for, R.C. Sproul. seems like he fits that pattern of a man of great conviction, doctrinal conviction, 
and yet great joy and love and kindness towards people. You know, absolutely. And I, I think that ultimately, if, if we can exhibit to the world love and joy and hope, I mean, is that what Peter says in his apologetics classic statement in 1 Peter 3.15 that uh, give an answer for the hope that is in us? So these mm-hmm. marginalized Christians in first century Rome were to be living in such a way that hope exuded from them. And I, I think that's a call for us. Yeah. And it's, it's funny you bring up RC because they there's a connection they were both drinking at the well of Martin Luther. And uh, I think just as Luther significantly influenced Bonifer, Luther also significantly influenced uh, our late friend, R.C. Uh, so, mm. so there's Luther. It's always the connection. Always the connection. And maybe one final question. Uh, so at the, as you've already said, at the break of dawn on April 9th, 1945, Bonhoeffer was hanged. And his final words were remembered and later retold by an actually a captured RAF pilot, a British pilot, who was also there with him. I wonder if you could tell us what he said as those final words and how that fits with his view of our lives as Christians. So the final words were, this is for me, the end, the beginning of life. And that perspective on recognizing Uh, That perspective on recognizing eternity as our ultimate home and as the ultimate reality for a Christian, that is what gives us ballast uh, in this life. And, you know, we're back to the words of Christ, aren't we? It's, It's whoever holds on to his life will lose it. But whoever gives up his life and loses his life for my sake will find it. And I think that's captured in Bonifer's life. And, as poetically, it's captured in Bonifer's death. Hmm. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for helping us to, to know a little bit more about this incredible man, this incredible Christian, and uh, helping us to recover his story for, for us today. Oh, my pleasure. I've enjoyed the time with you. Thanks. That was Stephen Nichols on the life, death, and legacy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Bonhoeffer on the Christian Life, From the Cross for the World. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.